and welcome to the first episode of our new Herbert Smith Freehills Private Wealth and Charities podcast series. This is the first of what we're hoping to make into a regular podcast feature and in the coming weeks and months we'll discuss relevant cases and trends in the private wealth and charities sphere. So do watch this space. The voice you just heard was Richard Norwich who is the head of our Trust and Estates Disputes team and head of Private Wealth Asia. I'm Julia Bihari. I'm an associate in our dispute resolution team. Fun fact about Julia, Julia is the only uh, native Hungarian speaker in the firm. So for any Hungarian language issues, obviously uh, find your way to Julia. That is correct. Do come to me with anything like that. (laughs) So today we're going to talk about three cases which go into potentially surprising heads of liability for people involved in family wealth structures such as trusts. We're going to look at two English cases and one New Zealand case. We'll talk about them very briefly today, but if you want more on those cases, please go over to our Herbert Smith Freehills Private Wealth and Trust Disputes blog. You can find the link in the podcast notes, or you can go to the website directly, which is hsfnotes.com slash pwtd. That's Private Wealth and Trust Disputes. So, Julia, do you want to kick us off with an English case? Yeah, sure. So the first case we would like to talk about is Borough Council and Cardoza. This is a cautionary tale in respect of the obligations of directors in majority family-owned businesses. It's a timely reminder for directors that they must prioritise the interests of the company, even if this creates a conflict with their moral duties that they owe or that they think they owe to their family members, just to avoid liability. In this case, the directors of the company controlling the Northampton Town Football Club were found to be in breach of their fiduciary duties to the company in respect of the use of funds drawn under a loan agreement with the local council. Case is a reminder for directors of family-run companies that they are subject to the regime of corporate law and that they are bound by stringent directors' duties, including fiduciary and statutory duties under the Companies Act 2006. One interesting aspect of this case, well, I should say it start off, the interesting aspect is that it involves a lower league football club. And being a fan of a different lower league football club, I take particular interest in the financial plight of such vehicles. But uh, also that the court in this case said that one of the defendants who was a director of the company uh, had been treating his loan account with the company, with the football club, as a current account available for day-to-day drawing. Now, of course, uh, in relation to lots of family companies and lots of family companies we have advised uh, and advised the shareholders of, that's not necessarily unusual that directors and shareholders have these uh, current account or loan accounts with the companies. The problem arises and arose in this case particularly is where the company has solvency issues. And rather than just being able to think about the shareholders of the company, rather than just thinking about the family members, you have to click over a little bit and start not to think not only about duties to shareholders, but also duties to creditors. There's another interesting development about directors' liability, although a slightly different aspect of it, in this New Zealand case that got published recently, in which a private trust company's director was held personally liable for costs in a trust dispute. Richard, what thoughts do you have on that case? Well, I should say first, the reason why it's interesting or interesting for me is that a lot of people choose these private trust company or PTC structures because they see it as insulating themselves from liability. So that if you're a director of a PTC, you're much less vulnerable to having to personally fork out in the case of liability uh, than if you are an individual trustee. 
And this goes back to cases like the English case of Gregson, which says that effectively dogleg claims don't work. You know, if you're a beneficiary going directly after a director of a PTC, you're going to struggle uh, 99 times out of 100. So what happened in this case? Why are we interested in this case? Well, this is a case where the director and shareholder of a PTC was made personally liable for certain legal fees which arose in proceedings. So let me just give you a bit of background on those proceedings. So the case involved a family dispute as to who should be the trustee of a trust. One of the parties to these proceedings was a trust company. They were called Guest Trustee Limited, controlled by an individual who was the sole shareholder and director of the company. It was accepted that the reason for the use of the trust company was to protect this individual from personal liability. As I say, that's not actually unusual. One of the beneficiaries of the trust appealed the first instance decision that each party should bear their own costs, claiming that their costs should be borne by, amongst others, Guest Trustee Limited and the company's director. The company's director, incidentally, was not a party to the proceedings. Now, that beneficiary won. They succeeded in their appeal, and the court made an order that the director of the trust company should pay those costs of that beneficiary directly. Now, from one perspective, uh, it might seem unusual because of the dogleg claim issue I was talking about before, but from another, it's actually more common because in lots of countries, and New Zealand is no exception, it is settled law that an award of costs may be made against a non-party. And in New Zealand particularly, the important considerations before making such a non-party costs order are one, the extent to which the non-party stands to gain from the litigation, and two, their level of involvement. And in this case, the court was satisfied that the non-party was sufficiently involved in the proceedings to warrant their liability under the costs order. And as I say, that the main takeaway, I think, from this case is the fact that as a director of a private trust company does not mean that you are immune in all circumstances from liability. And in this particular case, it was the costs of legal proceedings. So we've had one English case. We've had a New Zealand case. Let's go back to an English case. And Julia, maybe you can talk us through Group 7 Limited and Notable Services LLP. Sure, thanks Richard. So now on to a slightly different topic of dishonesty um, in respect of this recent Court of Appeal case. So in Group 7 Limited, the Court of Appeal overturned a first instance decision and held that an accountant member of a multidisciplinary firm of solicitors was liable as an accessory for dishonestly assisting breaches of trust. The facts of the case are not hugely relevant for our purposes, but the court gave some very helpful clarification in respect of the test for dishonesty in dishonest assistance claims. The court set out that to establish dishonest assistance, the following four criteria need to be met. First, there has to be a trust in existence. Secondly, there has to be a breach of that trust by the trustee. Thirdly, there has to be an assistance of that breach by the defendant. And finally, that assistance has to have been dishonest. Now, the only element in question in this case was this final one, i.e. whether the defendant's assistance was dishonest. And of course, dishonesty has been dealt with recently in in a fairly high profile case, which people may have heard of, called Ivy and Genting Casinos. And the court stated the test for dishonesty as follows. So the fact-finding tribunal must first ascertain subjectively the actual state of the individual's knowledge or belief as to the facts 
once his actual state of mind as to the knowledge or belief of the facts is established, now, and this is the bit we want to emphasise, the question whether his conduct was honest or dishonest is to be determined by the fact finder by applying the objective standards of ordinary decent people. There is no requirement that the defendant must appreciate that what he's done is, by those standards, dishonest. That's right. On the facts of this case, the question was whether the defendant had blind eye knowledge, so whether he had turned a blind eye, or whether he consciously decided to refrain from taking any steps to confirm the true state of affairs for fear of what he might discover. The court said that the relevant test for imputing blind eye knowledge was, firstly, a suspicion that that certain facts may exist, and secondly, a conscious decision to refrain from taking any steps to confirm their existence. The court in this case decided that the defendant in the case had a clear suspicion and consciously decided to refrain from taking steps to confirm the true state of affairs in fear of what he might discover. Now, the case is a good reminder for professionals such as lawyers and accountants, as well as individuals who are involved in the management of trust structures, that the court is prepared to find the presence of blind eye knowledge and, as a result, potentially a finding of dishonest assistance, where it's clear that the defendant must have harboured clear suspicions as to the state of affairs. Now, Richard, do you think that's a surprising outcome? Not particularly, to be honest. Um, I mean, solicitors and other professionals like accountants obviously have very onerous professional conduct rules. Um, And there are also other duties which are imposed by law. And it's unfortunately not the case that you can just sit around um, and wait for things to happen and not investigate if you see suspicions or you see problems arising. And I'm thinking there have been a few cases recently on this, not least one in Hong Kong where a trustee was found liable for not actively supervising investments and issues which involved um, that the failure of uh, investment performance. And so unfortunately, it's not the case that... um, that you can hide behind certain clauses or certain carve-outs. You do very often need to be active in the way that you carry out your duties. So on that perhaps not so cheerful note, we wanted to thank you very much for listening to us today. We hope you found this podcast helpful. As we mentioned before, if you'd like more information about these cases, please head over to our blog, hsfnotes.com slash pwtd, or follow the link in the podcast notes. And we'll be back soon with further Private Wealth Podcasts.